I'm Alex Rover from the U.S. Rate Strategy Team, and you're listening to At Any Rate, our global research podcast, where we take a look at the story behind some of the biggest trends, themes, and industries in markets today. Today, I'm joined by Jay Barry, head of U.S. Government Bond Strategy, and we're going to talk about our outlook for fixed income markets in the second half of 2020. Our comments today are based on the J.P. Morgan U.S. Fixed Income Markets Weekly, published on June 19th. Today, we're about three or four months past the onset of the crisis. Thanks in large part to rapid and broad policy intervention, both fiscally by the federal government and monetarily by the Federal Reserve, fixed income markets have stabilized and rebounded from the stress. As we noted in our overview, virtually every spread product has retraced 50 to 100 percent, and in some cases more from their wides of this year. Moreover, we're now looking at an issuance outlook for the second half that's very constructive across asset classes and promises to deliver over $3 trillion of net supply, probably just over half of which will be U.S. Treasuries. So at this point, I think we'll turn to Jay to talk more about Treasuries. So March through mid-year, the Treasury has been borrowing at a fever pitch. The Fed's been extremely supportive with asset purchases. Where do we stand entering the second half? And how is the Treasury market functioning versus how it was functioning in March? Sure, Alex. And I think we'd say at the outset that the functioning of the Treasury market has improved materially from where we were at the throes of the pandemic in the middle to the latter part of March. Just for you know, a few statistics, clearly volatility has fallen pretty rapidly. In March, we saw the long end of the Treasury curve experience its highest realized volatility since 1987 um, in over 30 years and at a time when rate levels were substantially higher than they are right now. And vol has since collapsed back to levels which were more consistent with vol that we saw prior to the outbreak of the pandemic. But then the other factors that we watch that look at the functioning of the Treasury market indicate that there is relative health right now. Um, we look at Treasury market depth, and it's by no means back at average levels that we observed over sort of a medium term, but back at pre-pandemic levels. And then other factors that we watched primarily the RMSE of our treasury curve, which is really just an aggregate measure of dispersion relative to our par curve, has come back to completely average levels. Um, moreover, primary dealer positions in treasuries, which had really ballooned in the month of March, particularly at the short end of the curve and at the long end of the curve, have relatively normalized as well. And when we look at this sort of suite of factors, it indicates that across these four or five factors that Treasury market functioning is within less than standard deviation of where it's been on average over the past five years. Thus, it's really no surprise that the Fed has pulled back on its pace of purchases by about 95% from the peak that we saw back in the late part of March and the beginning of April, and that the market has really not changed with respect to its functioning since then. Um, going forward, um, the borrowing, as you mentioned, Alex, has not is not going to abate, and we're looking for um, a total of $4.77 trillion in net issuance this year. Um, but where the Fed is, it's only capturing about 25% of the total net issuance in the market. So um, it is setting the stage um, for borrowing to pick up, particularly at the long end of the curve, as the Fed is pulling back. So as we're entering the second half of the year, Mike Faroli, is our chief economist, is looking for a trillion dollars of additional fiscal stimulus during the second half. How is Treasury going to respond to this? And you know, to what degree should we worry about deficits? Yeah, so 
as you mentioned, our forecasts are incorporating more stimulus, and that's going to take us, we think, to about $4.7 trillion in net issuance this year uh, and over uh, $2 trillion in net issuance next year as well. So it's naturally raised the question about with the deficits now that we're looking at being the largest that we've seen as a share of GDP since World War II, whether that's going to actually result in materially higher rates. So particularly as we see the Treasury respond in the second half, the last quarter has been really about issuance at the short end of the curve. We're at the tail end of a $3 trillion debt issuance quarter, the bulk of which is being financed in T-bills. Um, and the T-bill share of outstanding Treasury debt has risen from about 15% prior to the crisis to, we think, uh, a share that's headed towards 27 28% um, over the next month or two. Now, this means that the share of debt maturing within a year has become undesirably high for the Treasury, um, particularly when with respect to achieving its debt management objectives. And that means that we're going to see a sharp increase in duration supply in the second half. Um, we're thinking that gross duration supply on a monthly basis should average about 35% higher in the second half of 2020 than it did in the first half um, as the Treasury moves to extend the average maturity of its debt back to levels that were consistent with what we saw uh, prior to the outbreak of the pandemic. And we've already started to see an increase in suite of long-term issuance. At the May refunding, the Treasury bought back the 20-year bond. It also made large size increases across the curve. And we think it's on a path towards increasing its suite of note, bond, tips, and FRNs issuance by about $640 billion compared to what we saw in calendar year 2019. So this is a huge amount of duration as the Treasury extends the average maturity of its debt. Um, and we do, in fact, let me just say, think that deficits matter for rate levels, but we just think that other factors matter more. So the first thing to consider is that um, in the current environment, there's been sort of a collapse in private domestic spending, which means that there's been a corollary rise in savings that's gone along with it, which all equal should make it easier for private market participants to digest this issuance. But secondarily, and perhaps more importantly, when we look at the factors that have driven rates over the last quarter century, we find that budget deficits matter, but we find that other factors matter more. In the recent analysis that we've done, we looked at 10-year yields as a function of sort of four factors over the course of the past quarter century, including near-term Fed expectations, medium-term inflation expectations, um, global foreign exchange reserves as a share of GDP as a measure of global excess savings, and then finally, five-year-ahead budget deficit expectations coming from the CBO's um, semi-annual forecasts on budget deficits. And when we look at these factors, we find that really the most meaningful driver of rates over the course of the last quarter century or so has been the rising share of global foreign exchange reserves relative to GDP. And then after that, it's been the market's policy and inflation expectations as well. So as we move forward, even though budget deficits matter, um, and even though we are running the largest deficits that we've seen in the last 80 years, absent a real move higher in the market's Fed or inflation expectations, and it's hard for us to think that you're going to see a real move or a real large move to higher interest rates at the long end of the curve, particularly because the market's pricing the Fed on hold for the next four years and inflation expectations, even though they have risen recently, are still substantially below levels that persisted coming out of the last crisis after 2008 and 2009. So 
we think deficits matter, but we think these other macro factors matter more. And it's going to result, we think, if our forecasts are correct in yields that move higher, but in a very gradual fashion, not in a sort of dislocated fashion. So as you noted, Jay, you know, so far the, the government money funds have bought a huge amount of the bill supply and it seems like the Fed's bought a large chunk of everything else. Um, so they've been the leading supporters of the increased treasury supply. Who's going to buy, besides the Fed and the money funds, who's going to be the big buyers of supply in the second half? So I think there's a number of sources of demand that we like to track, Alex, that have been the sort of major constituents of demand for the treasury market over the last couple of decades, which are going to attempt to fill the demand gap uh, that needs to be filled. And maybe if we first think about the foreign community, um, there's actually been a substantial amount of uh, selling from the foreign community in 2020, um, primarily in the months of March and April, coming from both official and private institutions. Um, now, as we sort of read the tea leaves, some of this selling has actually been reversed in the data that we have that we can observe on a more real-time basis since then. And it appears from our perspective that foreign official institutions, after having sold um, a relatively significant amount of treasuries in the months of March and April, that the weekly data from the New York Fed or from the Fed on its custody holdings of treasuries have completely reversed back to year-end 2019 levels and are back to flat on the year. But we're not expecting sort of major growth from the official institution community as the global growth environment is not really supportive of a substantial increase in foreign exchange reserves. But that being said, we think there's room for private foreign investors to sort of continue to take up the pace of demand here. And there's a number of different pockets of private investors that are worth sort of speaking about. The first are um, dollar-funded foreign investors who tend to buy when carry is strong and there's prospects for capital gains. If anything, as the treasury curve has steepened and as funding rates have normalized, the carry in the treasury markets improved. And I think we know that if the market were to see a very large move higher in rates, that the Fed would likely step in and increase the pace of its purchases. So it's unlikely that we're going to see a large increase in yields. So we think that makes the case for dollar-funded private foreign investors to see their demand pick up in the second half. But we also think that local funded foreign investors will see a strong source of demand for treasuries as well. Because we look at the cost of selling your local government bonds in either yen or euro or sterling, then buying treasuries and hedging it back to local currency with a short-term hedge, those yield pickups are bigger than they've been in a number of years. So we think it sets the stage for relatively robust foreign private demand. And we're looking for about $100 billion in total foreign demand over the course of 2020. Uh, away from that, um, we need to consider the banks as well. Um, it's been a bit of a roller coaster year of demand from the banking community. But as we move forward, we find a few factors that are meaningful for bank demand and treasuries. One's the slope of the curve between the short and intermediates as a function of sort of bank net interest margin. And then the second is how treasuries appear relative to OAS as a representation of bank funding costs. And if we look ahead, we're looking for a modest steepening of the yield curve, which should be supportive of bank demand of treasuries. And uh, as our colleagues in derivative strategy have noted, they're looking for treasuries to cheapen relative to derivatives further. So both of these factors point towards an increase in, in demand from the banking community. And we've already seen this start to pick up, particularly in the bill market. And we think there's room for that to continue, particularly if bills continue to trade cheap relative to OIS. 
But net of these factors, we're looking for about $150 billion in demand from banks for this year. After that, we think we need to consider the LDI community, um, broadly the pension and insurance community, who have been significant supporters of treasuries over the past four years, buying about $100 billion in long-term treasuries per annum. The outlook for this community is not as strong as it was in the past few years, and that's primarily because the funded ratio for the largest defined benefit pension funds has declined pretty significantly from its peak. Back in mid to late 2018, that funded ratio peaked out um, in the mid 90%, and it's something closer to 85, 86% right now. So the pension community had been allocating out of equities and into fixed income as those funded ratios were rising to try and immunize their future liabilities. But now, with those funded ratios having taken a step back, primarily because long-term rates have fallen so much, it seems to us that the pace of demand is likely to be a, a bit slower than it was in past years. But even in the first quarter of 2020, it, it was robust. And we still think that there is likely to be room for demand from the LDI community, mainly because the cost of having an underfunded pension is still somewhat punitive. And the variable rate premium charged by the PBGC has continued to move higher and is creating an incentive for pension funds to make contributions and invest those into fixed income. So we already see scope for about $100 billion in LDI demand for this year. And when we net those factors up, and when we look at what we're expecting from the money fund community, which is about $1.55 trillion of demand this year, of which about $1.3 trillion has already occurred, and when we look about $2.3 trillion in demand from the Fed, it still indicates that there's a gap of close to $400 billion in demand that we need to see. So in the context of $4.7 trillion in net issuance, it's small, um, but it is a demand gap nonetheless. And it's part of the reason we think why it's going to require slightly higher yield levels to entice demand to increase from these current levels. So the biggest constituents that we track will certainly be there. But when we add them up, they're not going to be there at the same size that they have been in the past. And it's only really going to be the money funds and the Fed that are sitting here supporting the treasury market. Um, and if this is the case, um, the curve should steepen modestly, we think, in the second half. So, Jay, how should we think about yields and the curve going forward? You know, the Fed has signaled that the policy rates are on hold for the next two and a half years anyway, and yield curve control and negative interest rate policy don't seem like considerations. So we very much think that yields in the short to intermediate sector of the curve are going to be very well anchored going forward for the balance of this year. You mentioned, Alex, that the Fed has committed uh, or signaled to keeping policy rates on hold for the next two and a half years from the latest SEP. If anything, as the Fed completes its framework review, we think this summer, at some point later this year, in all likelihood in September, we will get further enhanced forward guidance. Um, either in the form of a calendar-based commitment, or more likely, we think, an outcome-based guidance. So you'll recall that in 2012, the Fed instituted what was called the Evans Rule, where it committed to keeping rates at the effective lower bound, so long as the unemployment rate was above 6.5%, or inflation a year ahead was projected to be below 2.5%. So we could see the Fed moving towards some sort of outcome-based guidance perhaps strengthened even further from what we saw nearly a decade ago, knowing that the natural rate of unemployment is likely a lot lower um, and that this will probably be leaning more heavily in the commitment toward its inflation outcome, particularly because the Fed hasn't been able to deliver on 2% inflation credibly over the course of the past decade. If that's the case, 
that should keep the short to intermediate sector of the curve very well anchored. The experience with guidance that we had a decade ago is that it kept Fed expectations anchored. It reduced volatility at the short end of the curve. But also our analysis has found that it did, in fact, act as an anchor for long-term yields as well. And every month that we could observe that the Fed was committed to keeping policy rates on hold brought down long-term yields in the five to 10-year sector by about three basis points. So at its peak in 2012, when the Fed was committed to keeping rates on hold for about a three-year period, that did partially keep 10-year yields probably about 35 basis points lower than they would be otherwise. So any extension of guidance in the second half of this year, we think will act as an anchor to sort of keep the five-year sector and in relatively close to where it's sitting right now. But at the long end of the curve, even though this guidance is effective, as we mentioned before, we think there's a bit of a demand gap um, from the constituents of the investors that we track that is going to require slightly higher yield levels in order to be digested smoothly. So we think as duration supply is expected to run about 35% higher in the second half of the year compared with the first half, that this is going to see a gradual rise in interest rates. And we see 10-year yields um, approaching 1% uh, by later this year, which implies from what we've said that the yield curve should steepen further. And in fact, the sort of medium-term representation of those views that we've been talking about um, has been the 530s curve, uh, that we see the 530s curve steepening further from current levels as well. Thanks, Jay. And that's all the time that we have for today. Thank you for joining us and stay tuned for more episodes of, at any rate, J.P. Morgan's Global Research Podcast Series. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please read J.P. Morgan Research Reports related to its contents for more information, including important disclosures. Copyright 2020, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company, all rights reserved. This episode was recorded on June 23rd, 2020.